Today's podcast is brought to you by the Bioceuticals Integrative Oncology Workshop with Dr. Lee Zalchula. This full-day program will run between the dates of the 20th and 28th of July across Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast, Adelaide and Perth. The intensive class will explore key concepts and therapeutic integrative strategies for breast, prostate, colon and lung cancers, as well as how to support toxicities associated with conventional treatment. By the end of the day, you'll be able to confidently implement this important aspect of patient care into your clinical practice. For more information and to register for this critical event, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me in the studio today is Belinda Reynolds, who's a dietitian with over 15 years' experience in the integrative medicine industry. She's a very renowned senior educator with Bioceuticals who regularly presents to audiences throughout Australia and New Zealand with great applause. And she's known for her practical, easy style and bringing complex biochemical processes into an easily digestible format with practical clinical applications. Welcome, Belinda. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Today we're going to be talking about extemporaneous dispensing because there's some exciting things coming to Australia, some of which are already in Australia, uh, and they're going to be available for practitioners to now use, to me, in a very exciting way. So can we maybe start off with, let's say it's the poster child, and that's N-acetylcysteine. Tell me what it's used for. First, tell me what it is. And then maybe we can go into the usage. Certainly. So N-acetylcysteine is firstly a precursor to the amino acid L-cysteine. Now, L-cysteine works as an antioxidant in its own right. However, it's also one of the limiting substrates for the synthesis of glutathione in the body. Now, glutathione is one of the most important antioxidants mm within the body and exists with within cells to protect against oxidative stress and also to maintain a cell's viability and functionality. As glutathione levels are depleted, uh, a cell's functionality and vi- viability decreases uh, to, a, to a point where it will die when uh, levels of glutathione are depleted to a certain degree. That's one of the reasons that red blood cells only last 120-odd days, isn't it? Because they don't have mitochondria. They rely on glutathione. Yes, that's right. Um, so it, it is. It's incredibly important for for cellular function. It is found outside the cells as well in certain areas, such as in the, the lining fluid of the lungs, uh, and therefore it's particularly important for protecting uh, healthy lung function. Uh, cysteine is not only useful as an antioxidant, uh, it also assists with uh, providing mucolytic benefits, which makes it useful in situations such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So it assists with breaking down disulfide bonds in, in mucus to help with reducing the viscosity of mucus so it can be cleared more efficiently. And it also seems to decrease the expression of uh, certain uh, mucin proteins, uh, therefore reducing mucus production. Uh in addition to that mucolytic benefit, when we're looking at chronic 
obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, the cysteine being an antioxidant and also for promoting uh, the glutathione production, it can protect against the excessive inflammation and oxidative stress which is associated with these conditions. So it has quite broad actions for a range of different different conditions in the body. Further to its antioxidant and mucolytic benefits, uh, because we know that inflammation is often initiated due to oxidative stress, it can be useful in a range of different inflammatory disorders. And it also assists with detoxification as well through its ability to enhance glutathione and thus glutathionation, which is an important part of uh, liver detoxification processes. In addition to this, uh, N-acetylcysteine also seems to provide a benefit for the brain in terms of its uh, glutamate uh, regulating benefits. So when we look at conditions such as addictions, uh, these are believed to be associated with imbalances in the glutamatergic systems uh, within the brain. And therefore, uh, researchers have investigated the use of N-acetylcysteine in these conditions and they have achieved uh, some very beneficial outcomes. And on top of that, uh, glutathione also has neuromodulatory functions as well and can function as a neurotransmitter in its own right. And so via, again, that ability of N-acetylcysteine to enhance glutathione synthesis uh, is very useful for a range of different uh, behavioural mood and neurological Condition. Okay, well, what sort of dosages could you use in some of these neurological conditions? And indeed, what neurological conditions have been shown for it to be effective? Okay, so there's a variety of different neurological conditions that uh, N-acetylcysteine has been trialled in. Uh, there's uh, some studies done on patients with bipolar depression. Mm -hmm. uh, the doses there were around one gram twice daily uh, in the studies and they achieved beneficial outcomes there. So when we look at a lot of the different uh, neurological conditions and behavioural disorders, uh, it has been uh, discovered or confirmed that these uh, problems are often associated with oxidative stress, inflammation and mitochondrial dysfunction within the brain. And of course, toxicity is a common contributing factor as well. That really rings of the 2015 symposium, doesn't it? It certainly does. <laughs> uh, th those uh, imbalances are, are associated with so many different chronic disease states and um, the brain is no exception. So when we're looking to address uh, many different chronic disease states associated with the brain, whether they be neurodegenerative conditions or behavioural problems, it really is important that we're uh, at least considering whether uh, toxicity oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction and, and inflammatory issues are a contributing factor mm. to these uh, diseases and therefore addressing them as well. And it's interesting because when we, we do look at bipolar depression, uh, the underlying pathophysiologies associated with that are very similar to depression and, and anxiety disorders and neurodegenerative issues like uh, dementia uh, and even Parkinson's disease. And uh, what they do see is that that oxidative stress and glutathione depletion in the brain as well. And it's due to these findings that the N-acetylcysteine has been trialled for these conditions and they have achieved really significant benefits. And thinking back to the brain-derived neurotrophic factor that we discussed in our previous uh, chat, 
this brain-derived neurotrophic factor is essential for the survival but also the growth of neurons in particular areas of the brain, such as the hippocampus, that control mood, behaviour, emotion, learning and memory. And this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, is compromised by oxidative stress, glutathione depletion, inflammation and toxicity. So it's likely that via N-acetylcysteine's ability to promote glutathione, protect against oxidative stress, and therefore suppress any reductions in uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor expression, uh, that we're improving the health of these areas of the brain and thus enhancing neurotransmission and also neuroplasticity. So uh, again, Bipolar depression, it was one gram twice a day that they found to be effective. Of course, it's worth when we have a patient in front of us uh, presenting with these sorts of conditions. There's many other factors that we do need to address, uh, but N-acetylcysteine certainly should be a consideration uh, when putting together a treatment protocol. If we have a look at uh, other brain-related issues, such as Alzheimer's disease, very high doses have been used uh, at five milligrams per kilogram per day. So uh, very high doses to achieve Mm. that protective benefit for uh, the brain and also to try and uh, assist that neuroplasticity uh, by protecting against the oxidative stress that's clearly suppressing that neuroplasticity. Uh, And of course, again, uh, functional medicine and a broad spectrum approach is the most beneficial way of managing these conditions. Mm, Absolutely. So yeah, that that recent trial that came out of UCLA, it was a a small trial, but using functional medicine, they were able to reverse symptoms of, of dementia using improvements in diet, improvements in lifestyle, relaxation techniques, mitochondrial nutrients, uh, and then adding something like this uh, into that sort of protocol could be very, very useful. But I also think it's important. It's the age-old question. It's, it's nice to give it, but you've got to give it in appropriate dosages. And then after that, you've got to think about the cost as well. So we've seen with certain um, ingredients that great to use, but then the amount that you've got to use to get a benefit, the cost just makes it prohibitive. Uh, glutathione was a pointing question. Um, Sammy was another one. So it's great now to be able to have on hand a truly therapeutic tool that you can adjust the dose for each individual patient that you see. It is. It's it's fantastic and very exciting for, for practitioners because they'll be achieving better patient outcomes, which is beneficial, of course, for the patient, but also for it's satisfying for the practitioner themselves. Mm. It's very rewarding to be achieving those sort of outcomes in in patients. So what are the conditions? Like you mentioned uh, respiratory conditions. I remember a, it was called an orphan drug called mucomist, and it was N-acetylcysteine for cystic fibrosis. You've mentioned its use in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, what dosages are apl- applicable there? So Generally, uh, the results were achieved using at least 600 milligrams twice a day. So studies using lower doses had been done and they didn't achieve the outcomes really that they were looking for. So it tends to be at least 1,200 milligrams per day that is needed for a a longer period of time. The studies that didn't achieve the outcomes they were looking for, I think, used the smaller doses, just 600 milligrams a day and it was only utilised over a shorter period of time. So I think definitely that that higher dose, which can be achieved now with the availability of these extemporaneous products, um, 
for at least a good 12-week yeah. period. So I know I'm flipping back to a neurological condition, but there was a trial that I think was finished in January 2014. I haven't seen the results of this yet, but it was um, used for NAC used in Tourette's syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, with children with Tourette's syndrome. And they had a titrated dose. So I think it was 600 milligrams twice a day for two weeks and then double that amount, um, 1,200 milligrams twice a day for a further 10 weeks. Should we be titrating the dose in all patients or do we have to assess them maybe as per their um, detox profile? How, How able are they to handle this nutrient? So generally, high doses of uh, upwards of uh, 2,400 milligrams per day have been used uh, with uh, very um, little side effects. Mm -hmm. So generally, it is a well-tolerated supplement. However, uh, as we're starting to understand more and more, there's huge individuality within patients and we can never completely predict how an individual will respond to a supplement and therefore I don't think it would be a bad thing to start low dosage and then based on that patient's tolerability of that dose you could then slowly titrate the dose upwards toward that therapeutic uh, amount. You know this this reminds me of MSM, methyl sulfonylmethane. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take too much too soon in a lot of people, it will cause nausea very, very quickly. And yet if you titrate that dose up, it, it doesn't seem to have that, that ill effect. And then therefore they can handle you know, quite huge doses, four, six grams a day. But if you start off on two grams, you'll be done in about half of your patients. So Let's now move on to another usage. And this this one really interests me, and that's the use of NAC in fertility. Yes, so there has been a a, a number of trials that have looked at NAC's ability to enhance fertility. Uh, In women in particular, uh, those with polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, who commonly have problems with ovulation, uh, they have achieved benefit uh, with the use of N-acetylcysteine. So doses of 1,200 milligrams Mm. per day uh, have been used and have been shown to improve ovulation, improve uh, conception rates and also improve the, the chances of live birth. And it's believed that this is via uh, N-acetylcysteine's ability to promote glutathione and lead to improved uh, health of the, the ovaries themselves, but also yeah. by improving insulin function at the receptor within the body uh-huh. and therefore reducing uh, previously elevated levels of insulin, which ultimately then helps to bring down excessive androgen release, which tends to compromise healthy ovulation. Uh, I had no idea that it would be working in that way. Yeah, and uh, um, one study actually even discussed uh, that it helped to reduce uh, focal ischemia in in the area as well, so it helped with uh, promoting healthy circulation uh, to and within the ovary. Um, you know, I think this this rings a bell or, or what this says to me is that we compartmentalise mm-hmm. certain nutrients and, and things into an antioxidant and it just appears that it's not necessarily the way they're working. Mm-hmm. It seems to be working on receptors and genes and 
and I, I, I really, I wonder if it's all got to do with electrons, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. we, I, we box it into an antioxidant. I think we've got to look f- much further afield that NAC's got wide-ranging effects. I, I agree for sure. And I mean, even just doing a review and looking at the literature that's available, the number of different conditions that it seems to be useful for is really quite incredible. And I guess that is in line with our growing understanding of how this depletion of, of endogenous antioxidants that contributes to oxidative stress, that leads to initiation of inflammatory cascades, that leads to more oxidative stress, uh, that of course to um, is associated with the mitochondrial dysfunction and all of these things are contributing to such a, a wide range of different diseases and therefore if we can use a supplement that is addressing all of these aspects it is going to be very useful for a, a broad different range of conditions and a wide range of patients. So tell me what else. What, what, what other things is NAC useful for? So we know that it's useful for improving ovulation in, in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. I should say there too, of course, it's very important that we're also addressing the diet the within these, yeah. Yeah, in, in these individuals. And there's other things that we can do for these patients to improve their their glucose control uh, and also assist with achieving ovulation. Uh, But uh, male fertility has also been investigated using N-acetylcysteine as well. Now, this this to me is a much more obvious one because I'm thinking about sperm motility Mm -hmm. and functionality. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, it was interesting. The 600 milligram per day dosage that they utilised didn't achieve significant changes in morphology and motility. So there may be high doses required or you may need to look to to other uh, nutrients to use in conjunction with the NAC, Uh, but it certainly did improve uh, the semen viscosity uh, and also other aspects of uh, male fertility as well. Uh, When we're looking at what else could be utilised, L-carnitine, ubiquinol, uh, is a big one, and also zinc and, and selenium are all very useful. For Korean that. ginseng as well. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I think it's it's great to look at these these clinical trials that have been done using isolated nutrients or ingredients, uh, but we still need to then take that as part of what we can do um, for addressing the bigger picture of what is going on for an individual. But most people will know N-acetylcysteine because of its, I'm going to say pigeonholed uh, use, and that is liver detoxification. Um, now, as I said, I think we've got to look far further afield, but it really gels with what Dr. Joe Pizzorno was talking about at the 2015 Biocidical Symposium about our you know, you, um, insidious and ubiquitous load of toxicants. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about NAC's use in liver detox and what are the appropriate dosages. Surely there's got to be some variance here for the various toxins? In terms of specific doses for various toxins, I don't have specific doses in my head, but uh, the N-acetylcysteine is absolutely a, a key uh, ingredient for enhancing a healthy detoxification. So uh, glutathionation or glutathione conjugation is a very important pathway of liver detoxification. Um, specifically phase two, uh, it's involved in assisting with the detoxification of endogenous toxins uh, such as uh, estrogens, uh, but also too for heavy metals and other uh, uh, exogenous toxins. 
And of course, we know that N-acetylcysteine is able to promote healthy glutathione levels. So that's where it makes it uh, very useful for detox. But the glutathione isn't just essential for phase two. Often when someone is quite toxic and nutrient deficient, they'll often find that phase one is working over time Mm -hmm. and producing rather volatile intermediates that are awaiting movement into phase two. And if phase two is falling behind, which is often the case in toxicity, Mm -hmm. uh, damage can occur to the liver in that intermediate phase. And glutathione depletion due to toxicity and due to oxidative stress can actually uh, result in greater uh, damage to the liver cells uh, during that intermediate phase. So what do you see here? you see raised liver enzymes? It can be raised liver enzymes, yes, and the development of fatty liver uh, and other conditions and also other signs of toxicity as well because if the liver isn't functioning effectively, uh, then you will be experiencing sort of greater symptoms of, of toxicity. The other factor that uh, the glutathione is important for as well is phase three. So that transport of the conjugated toxins or the metabolized toxins out of the cells for ultimate excretion. Uh, Research has shown that in the face of glutathione depletion, uh, this can actually alter antiporter protein function uh, and result in uh, phase three not being carried out efficiently. So phase three, so forgive me, I, I thought that phase three was the enterohepatic recirculation. We're talking about something different here, the antiporter. Yes, so the antiporter proteins. proteins. So these do function in the liver, but they function in other areas as well. So the gastrointestinal tract is a great example. Many people don't realise, but the enterocytes or the the cells that line the gut are responsible for around 25% of the detoxification processes that are occurring in the body. They don't necessarily carry out phase two uh, reactions. They're generally uh, happening in the liver. However, the gut cells do have cytochrome P450 enzyme activity, so phase one activity, and they have these antiporter proteins as well, so phase three. And uh, as we're constantly bombarding our guts with toxins as we eat food and, and drink fluids throughout the day, these phase one and phase three processes are constantly working to try to uh, neutralise toxins that are passing through, but also trying to spit them out to prevent their uptake. Uh. And with these cytochrome P450 enzyme systems or if these antiporter protein um proteins aren't functioning efficiently, we're starting to then allow a greater passage of volatile toxins into the body. Combine that with uh, compromised intestinal integrity, uh, then you have an even greater uh, passage of, of toxins. So the anti- antiporter proteins are how the phase three enterohepatic recirculation is working. Yes. Right. Yes. So, and uh, this uh, that process of the the gut cells working to prevent toxin uptake can be referred to as detoxication. So it's more preventing uptake as opposed to detoxification, which is removing uh, the, the toxic chemicals. So um, I just want to ask there about the, the major things that we should be remembering with uh, adding to or using alongside NAC to help this phase three detox- detoxification because we get caught up in supplements. Mm-hmm but we've got to realise that diet is the mainstay. 
Absolutely. So there's numerous uh, naturally occurring compounds in our food which can really support the upregulation of numerous detoxification enzymes. So cruciferous vegetables are a great source of a range of different uh detoxification enzyme promoting compounds uh, I mean sulforaphane also calcium deglucurate they naturally occur in a lot of the the cruciferous vegetables and prebiotic fiber is really important too because this is feeding the microbiota that exists within our gut and the microbiome is very important for preventing that passage of toxins. It not only uh, is responsible for producing things such as short-chain fatty acids, which fuel healthy replication and renewal of gut cells to maintain that intestinal integrity, but they have been shown to sequester and bind certain toxins like heavy metals. I remember an article years ago written by Petra Hunter that was published in FX Medicine, and it was one of the best articles I've ever read on probiotics and their usefulness in detoxification. The major point I got out of it, though, was that even the good bugs metabolise toxicants. In this case, I think she was mentioning mercury specifically. They metabolise it, and it can into a reabsorbable form. So that's the good guys. The message was that they did it slower than the bad guys. So the trick here, the pragmatic take-home message is keep the bowels moving. Yes. <laughs> it's practical. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's it's when uh, certain compounds are allowed to hang around in the gut where you are at that increased risk of getting reabsorption too of uh, free or, or bound toxins. So I know, um, for example, uh byproducts of glucuronidation, uh, for example, uh, estrogens that have been bound to glucuronic acid, so you've got those glucuronide uh, conjugates, if they're allowed to sit in the bowel for a long period of time, there's an increased risk of the enzyme beta-glucuronidase being given the opportunity to cleave that bond between the glucuronic acid and that estrogen or, or other toxin. And as a result, this renders that toxin now free uh, for either causing problems locally or free for reabsorption. And that just really does reinforce the importance of keeping that bowel moving so that you have a reduced risk of, of that and now occurring. You've, you've opened up a really interesting subject, and that's calcium deglucurate used mm. to help um, inhibit beta-glucuronidase. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be our next podcast. Yes. Because this is a really important use, and it's very, very important for something that I'm quite passionate about. So... Are you okay if we bring you back in and we'll, we'll talk about calcium deglucurate and its uses? Absolutely, that would be great. Belinda Reynolds, thank you so much. You are an absolute wealth of information. I love hearing the, the things that you take out of the research and how you can use them practically, how practitioners can use them practically in their clinic. And I think, you know, one of the important things that we're hearing about this extemporaneous dispensing thing is now practitioners can use truly therapeutic doses that we've been clawing at for so many yes. years. So thank you so much for joining me in the studio. And thank you for having me. This is FX Radio. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm -hmm.